Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. In November, Supreme Court justices will hear the first case on gun rights in America in over a decade. A ruling on the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin could fundamentally change our concealed carry laws. That decision will come after a record year in gun sales and as more women and people of color become gun owners for the first time. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're listening back to a show that aired in March when we learned that gun sales skyrocketed during the pandemic. And although gun sales have dropped in 2021, they are still higher than pre-pandemic levels. The largest increase in gun purchases in 2020 was by African-Americans. Later in the show, we'll dig deeper into those numbers and we'll talk to a legal scholar who argues that the Second Amendment doesn't equally protect people of color. But first, we want to explore gun culture here in Connecticut. Will Hampton joins us now. He's chapter president of the Black Gun Owners Association of Norwalk and owner of the Gullah Warriors Gun Club in Lower Fairfield County. Will, welcome to Disrupted. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Now, you've had your pistol permit for over 20 years. Talk to us about what made you decide that you wanted to take that step to become a licensed gun owner. Initially, it was an interest in the shooting sports, which is the fun, uh, not so uh, self-defense centered side of it. But um, also prior to graduating high school, buried two best friends to uh, gun violence and also um, had a gun, you know, drawn on me, my brother, and uh, my two cousins once while we were just minding our own business. So, you know, coming to the conclusion early that we don't live in a perfect world. There's a lot of discussion in the U.S. about gun culture. And for me, as someone who grew up in the South, what gun culture looks like there is quite different from what we may encounter in Connecticut. And you just talked about the enthusiasm and gun sports, but also safety and protection. So what would you say gun culture looks like here in Connecticut? You know, we can't uh, negate or neglect, you know, what uh, violence takes place in, in certain cities. You know, that's that's an issue and it's sad, but it definitely correlates with lack of jobs and opportunity. You know, it's no coincidence that, you know, uh, some of the highest crime ridden areas are also those who, with the uh, poorest education. Yeah, they don't make as much. You know, the median uh, home income is the lowest in the country. And uh, for places like Detroit, you know, a definite spike in crime the minute uh, jobs left. Uh, so that's definitely one side of it. But uh, gun culture is, um, you know, fun. It's target practice. It's, uh, you know, competing, um, you know, learning about safety, learning about different platforms. Most people start with a pistol then they graduate to either a, a rifle or a shotgun. Um, just at the, uh, we have a Sunday gun day every second Tuesday, uh, second Sunday of uh, each month. And um, two of the sisters fell in love with a shotgun and a 12 gauge shotgun at that, because a lot of times there's, uh, there used to be a lot of negative um, connotations with what caliber a woman can or can't handle. And I don't really buy that. You know, I was raised by my mom and my grandmother and they're tough. So I didn't buy that at all. 
So, um, you know, they fell in love with the 12 gauge shotgun and it's all just practice, safe technique and form. So they're ready to skip pistols and just go, you know, they're pros now in their own head. But um, we we have a lot of fun. You know, we, we talk about especially a lot of people now that are coming to me because I'm also a firearms instructor um, about race and, and the issues that have been revealed. You know, I don't think it's anything new, but that have been revealed in this last year. So I want to talk about these sort of new trends that we're seeing over the, the past year. But I want to go back to something that you just said about being an instructor. Why the move from being an enthusiast to now owning a gun club, being an instructor, and opening up membership to people who want to do this safely, but also want to be a part of a club? Um, I thought the concept of a club was always cool. I just never looked at it as being something uh, locally that, you know, at first I was looking to join, but I didn't see, you know, when I first had these thoughts, there were no uh, NAGA or BGOA. So it was just kind of like getting together with fellas that um, also have their permit. But, um, you know, with me really taking that step was in direct response to uh, the Ahmaud Arbery situation, which... um, involved retired police but um you know they were protected literally by the local um prosecutors and you know just that that you know the way it was handled was as if we were still living in the 30s and you know it was then where i came to the conclusion that you know certain aspects of this government society does not have my best interests um at hand even when the right thing is done you know same with philando castile so um i knew how many people I can count on one hand who had the permit and I know how many conversations I've had uh, with our people in regards to their fears, concerns and drawing more attention and things like that. So I really wanted to um, walk the walk and uh, dispel some of some of the myths and the Ahmaud Arbery situation, him running and minding his business, you know, by day I'm a personal trainer. So that could have easily been me. And, you know, that that resonated with me big time. So, you know, I figure instead of um, just, you know, go on rants online, I'd rather do something, at least on a local level. So NAGA, for our listeners, is the National African-American Gun Association. And when most people in this country think about a gun rights organization or a group of people who want to use that, they think of the NRA, the National Rifle Association. But you're mentioning these two national organizations that you've started, local chapters, who address both the social context for African-Americans, but also that sort of camaraderie of understanding how these things overlap. Why was it important for you to start a chapter that focuses on African-American gun owners? Because it's a different experience for us in this country. Um, you know, uh, our a lot of our plight, um, things have changed a lot based off of you know, us taking up arms. It was one of the only protections, forms of protection against the Klan. Um, you know, Rosa Parks uh, chased the Klan away from her porch, you know, a, a good amount of times. We never hear that part. Um, as uh, we had discussed before, um, when Black men got the right to vote, it was Black women surrounding those voting boats with guns and firearms to fight the Klan off. You know, a lot of the uh, uh, legitimate legislation that came following like the Black Panthers and a lot of their stances, you know, came based off of a fear that needed to be created, unfortunately, for us to get the rights and respect that, you know, we're still kind of fighting to have. So locally, it's, it's just a continuation 
of of that discussion, uh, that that fight, and making sure that you know we take our safety into our own own hands, whether it's on an individual level or as a collective. We saw a sixty percent increase in black gun ownership in twenty twenty. And some of that is driven by the things that you discussed, the historic nature in which many Black communities felt unprotected or unsafe, but also the changing disruptions of this pandemic that made some people say, I need to do something differently. Are you seeing that same sort of trend in Connecticut, whether it's membership in your organization or just the conversations you have with people who want to pursue their permits? Definitely. Um, a lot of the membership is driven based off of um, the rev- revelations of this previous uh, administration and, and uh, year. Um, and then as far as Connecticut, um, I, I I would assume because there are definitely other chapters that are popping up. Hartford area has one. So I would assume it's pretty parallel going across the board and, you know, somewhat of a of a, an awakening taking place uh, for the most part with with our people and gun rights and protection and just, you know, it's your sovereign right to protect your life. And that that's just, you know, where it's, you know, starts and stops for me. One of the challenges that often emerges when groups and communities mobilize to protect themselves is that it can also spark fear amongst other people. Do you have a concern that this increase in gun ownership may spark that kind of retaliation? Or are you more focused on how communities come together to protect and affirm themselves? More concerned with how communities come together to protect themselves. I really don't care about anyone else's fear because we've exhausted all means of, you know, just gradually assimilating into, you know, um, just Western society, you know. Um, And like I said, based off of, you know, my upbringing is the church and, you know, it's always been just a passive turn the other cheek type of um, approach. So, you know, to even have this conversation in 2020 in itself is telling. So, yeah, I could really care less about anyone else's fear because those who know me, as I said, I'm a personal trainer. Most of my clients are white. You know, they they know well, you know, and they we have the same conversations. I've actually had more conversations with um, my white friends asking, you know, honest questions about race that otherwise would have been either woke, uh, work inappropriate or they just didn't think about because it didn't affect them. And I don't blame them for that. You know, why would they? You know, we live in, you know, a, a, a white man's world, basically. And, you know, it's 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 truly about us, you know, with love for everyone. But it's truly about us right about now. One of the benefits of, of many that have come out of these disruptions during these pandemics is that, as you say, we're having more conversations, not just conversations with people of similar backgrounds, but across the lines that traditionally divide us. What's the conversation that you have with young people who see the spikes in violence happening in Connecticut and across the country, who shoulder this fear that their very body or their very presence may be viewed negatively or that they fear for their lives. What's the conversation that we should be having with young people around guns and gun safety? Um, First of all, I think the, the conversation should be centered around their most powerful weapon and that's their mind, you know, and knowing that, um, 
whether from a self-defense standpoint, walking away is always the first and most important option. But, um, you know, when people we love spewing how our ancestors died for this, died for that. No, they died for you to be able to walk this planet fearless. So, you know, doing what we have to do to protect ourselves, to um, start, you know, investing in our own and things like that needs to be, you know, the main focus, you know, um, violence on, on the gun violence side that isn't going anywhere anytime soon. But us, you know, coming together as a community, creating our own businesses, jobs, corporations, and then employing those same very um, uh, individuals has the huge a huge potential to change you know our realities as as we know it um there's a huge buy back the block movement going on in a lot of different cities and i'm loving it because you know it's kind of offsetting the gentrification that is definitely taking place in like my city uh norwalk and a lot of surrounding cities Will Hampton is president of the Black Gunner, Gun Owners Association of Norwalk and owner of the Gullah Warriors Gun Club in Lower Fairfield County. Will, thank you so much for joining us today. No, no problem at all. Thank you. Coming up, we'll dig deeper into some of the statistics we heard earlier in the show, and we'll hear how the Second Amendment often fails to protect African Americans. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about the disruptions around gun ownership last year. It's typical for gun purchases to increase in the winter months and during times of unrest, but 2020 really piled on. Lakija Chavis is a reporter at The Trace. It's a news organization reporting on America's gun violence crisis. She told me that 2020 was a record year for guns, with about 22 million legal purchases. I asked her to talk more about the trend she's seeing. 2020 wasn't just an election year. It was an unprecedented year of just so many things that people did not anticipate, like the pandemic. And with that, you have increased stress, increased anxiety. And so you just have this boom in legal gun purchases as well. And separate from that, we also have um, an increase in violent crime. And, you know, I think it was just a a mix where people felt like their safety uh, was really compromised. You know, there was so much job insecurity, housing insecurity caused by by the pandemic. And it's really too early to tell if any of this is related to legal gun sales and the violence that we were seeing. But both things, you know, did occur in a way that I think shocked reporters covering this issue as well as researchers and and policymakers. There's a lot of fear and a lot of vulnerability for a number of reasons being felt widely across the country. But there's also particular dynamics happening for communities of color related to the events of last year and even now in 2021. What are the trends that you are seeing amongst communities of color in relation to these issues that you report on? 
Yeah, so when we talk about gun sales increasing across the country, uh, which is what happened during the pandemic, no state was left untouched um, by these spikes in gun purchases. But I think oftentimes it is framed through a lens of uh, white men living in rural areas uh, purchasing guns. But that is not always the case. And so what we saw in 2020 was really an uptick and people from different communities of color wanting to be gun owners. And, um, you know, in their words, they really wanted to exercise, you know, their Second Amendment rights. And so uh, we saw, uh, you know, people in affiliated groups, so groups dedicated to Black gun ownership, uh, Latinx gun ownership, um, and uh, in some Asian communities as well, uh, people wanting to um, buy guns. We've also seen an increase in hate crimes and biased crimes targeting particular communities. And I'm thinking here of the spike in anti-Asian sentiment and violence. Do you think that that social context is driving some of this? Or is it more about affirming one's citizenship and access to those rights and protections? Yeah, I mean, I think both of those things are intertwined. Um, and uh, for the increase in hate crimes against um, Asian communities in this country, what one of my colleagues reported early on in the pandemic is that uh, in certain parts of the country, uh, gun store owners uh, were really seeing an increase in um, people from Asian communities wanting to, to purchase guns, and they were very scared. And when you look at the context in which this was happening, you had a presidential administration um, that really um, spewed very, you know, racist things about um, the coronavirus and its origins. And uh, so um, it's not surprising in some ways that we're seeing this this increase. Um, And the number one reason that people uh, want guns in this country is for self-protection. And that has been um, the most common reason for decades now. It's interesting how racial and ethnic identity shapes access, but also shapes purpose. I think that we have a racialized notion of, you know, white men perhaps engaging in this for sport and for enthusiasm and for communities of color. It's more about protection. But much of your reporting also focuses on the negative outcomes of this, the spikes, as you say, and violence but also the dramatic increase in people who are dying by suicide as the result of guns and gun violence. What are you seeing in your reporting? Yeah, so um, it's really hard to connect um, legal gun purchases that happened last year to the violence that we're seeing. Um, So in some ways it's separate uh, because guns that might be used in a crime later on um, tend to be, at least in Chicago, I'll say, uh, tend to be about a a decade old. Um, But what we also saw this year in Chicago was a, um, you know, spike in um, suicides among people, among Black people in the Chicago area. And that is also something that people weren't anticipating. Um, And when we look at um, just suicides in general across the country, um, uh, the common method used is often with a firearm. Um, And that is because firearms are just so deadly. It's very, very hard to come back from a firearm injury. Um, So it it plays a huge role in, in suicides as well. 
Let's talk a little bit about Chicago because Chicago often comes up in national conversation, but it comes up as this throwaway example of look at Chicago. And it doesn't really address the people of Chicago and the conditions that people are navigating. What's happening in the city that you think, or, or from your research and your, your journalism, what's happening in Chicago that may be leading to some of these spikes? Yeah, so when we talk about things like gun violence or, or, or mental health, um, I think it's really important to talk about all of the different issues that make um, violence more likely. So things like poverty, things like, um, you know, uh, unstable housing situations, um, job attainment, wealth attainment, um, when you don't have the resources um, to make all of that possible, um, it puts you at a higher risk of uh, not only victimization, but perhaps being a perpetrator of violence as well. So when we talk about Chicago, it's important to remember that this is one of the most segregated cities in the country. When we see things like gun violence and uh, mental health crises that are happening, um, you know, we see it in the same areas of the city over and over again. And then you throw in things like uh, the pandemic, um, the first wave of the coronavirus really devastated communities that were already um, highly affected uh, by, by violence. So what's being done? What's being done to address this in Chicago or perhaps in other parts of the country that are grappling with these same challenges? Yeah, so one of the, the interesting things that um, I noted last year was just the increase in reliance uh, on street outreach workers. This, this is sometimes referred to as violence interruption. Um, so you really had cities relying on people who are considered sort of credible messengers uh, in their community. Uh, these are people that, um, at least in Chicago, they often grew up in the neighborhoods that they now work in. Um, sometimes they uh, have, have had very close experiences with gun violence, either as a victim and or as a or perpetrator. Um, and uh, they are now trying to make a difference um, in the communities that they serve. And so what you saw um, during the pandemic is that they took on things like COVID outreach, letting people know that this um, virus was real um, and how people could protect themselves, um, as well as uh, lately, um, training outreach workers um, to spot signs of domestic violence as well, in addition to all of the other work that, that um, they've been doing. And um, I will say that street outreach, especially in Chicago, is not new. It's been around for several decades, but um, during the pandemic, you just really saw a a reliance on, uh, you know, from government institutions um, on these uh, workers because they were the closest to the ground and they really could say, you know, what was happening, what people knew and what resources that they, that they needed. There's been a lot of concern about, not just in Chicago, but across the country about young people not being in schools. How are these organizations, whether it's the street outreach workers or other community organizations, how are they connecting with young people? Yeah, so I think um, in Chicago, there are lots of groups that are working with children, either, you know, um, young children and teenagers are being referred to their organizations or they're, you know, out in the community trying to meet them and offer them things um, like help with school, mental health resources, um, and, uh, you know, access to food and things like that. And what I'm hearing from uh, people who do this work every day is that really it's not just, you know, addressing the child's needs, but trying to figure out how to help the family as a whole. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there's 
just so much stress happening. And sometimes that trickles down to children as well. As well. So really trying to address the family unit, everyone living in that house um, to, you know, in some ways directly uh, assist the child as well. There's often a lot of attention paid when we have mass acts of gun violence. And in particular, I'm thinking of school-based shootings. And one of the benefits of this pandemic is that that has not happened at the level that we have seen in years past. But it also means that, as you mentioned in your work, we need to start addressing the why and the context. Lakidra Chavis is a reporter at The Trace. It's a news organization that reports on America's gun violence crisis. Lakidra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, the right to bear arms is written in our constitution, but is it the reality on the ground for many Black Americans? And if you or a loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is one 800 273-8255. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 2020 was a record year for gun purchases, but it was also a year of racial reckonings. So many names have become all too familiar. Philando Castile, Jamel Robinson, Amantic Bradford, they're all Black men who were carrying firearms legally, yet all shot and killed by police in the last decade. Margaret Etienne is a law professor, associate dean, and the Nancy Snowden Research Scholar at the University of Illinois College of Law. She's also an expert on the history and legacy of gun policy in the U.S. I asked her to talk about the history of the Second Amendment and how understanding that history is critical to making sense of this current moment. So the Second Amendment, obviously, it's part of the Bill of Rights, and it guarantees the right to bear arms. And there's questions about who gets to bear arms and is it an absolute right? There's a lot of, of language or, or constraints that people talk about that don't necessarily appear in the language of the amendment, but uh, have come about over time through various case law um, and legislation. And there's a very long history to the idea of gun ownership that well precedes the Second Amendment itself. The language of the Second Amendment is incredibly brief. And yet, as you mentioned, has sparked really decades and centuries of debate and conflict about what it means. Some of us are familiar with the the murder of Philando Castile in Minneapolis or the murder of John Crawford in Ohio, who had picked up a pellet gun in the store and then was shot and killed by an officer. Those are the contemporary examples where people have argued the Second Amendment does not protect Black gun owners. But you say that there's a much longer history of having that unequal protection. What's that bigger picture and that historical background that we need to know? I think I should start with a clarification that we as as lawyers, as law scholars, often notice that there's a difference between the law as it's written and the law as it's practiced, how we think about it, the law on the ground. And so it's, it's great to start with the text of the Second Amendment. And of course, the text itself says nothing about restricting 
um, the rights of African-Americans or any particular group from owning guns. But we can see that the way in which that right is protected or not protected says something about whether we recognize a Second Amendment right for all people. And it's clear in the examples that you raised, um, the more recent examples, but also historically, that Blacks have not traditionally had their Second Amendment rights protected. So they exist on the books, of course, but they're not necessarily um, recognized. And so historically, from the very beginning of this foundation of this country, as I, as I was alluding to before, the rights of gun owners have been quite racialized. The idea that, that guns were rampant and everyone owned a gun at the founding of this country is not accurate. In colonies in general, the crown, in this case, that the colonizer, the British crown, has reason to want to limit gun ownership within the colonies. Colonists who came in appealed to the British crown, to the, to the government there saying, you know, we actually need guns. We need guns because we have different, different constraints, different issues than other colonies might have. We've got the indigenous population. We've got the black population. We've got indentured servant, the poor white population. And in order to maintain some control, we're going to need to be able to bear arms. And so from the very beginning, um, the idea that some people could own guns in the colonies and some people could not own guns was, was very clear. Going Moving forward, there's still a long history, particularly dealing with African-Americans who were, of course, restricted from owning firearms um, and their rights were limited in, in many ways that go far beyond the Second Amendment, as we know. But that started to change over time. Um, particularly, we see a shift in the Civil, Civil War, where for the first time, Blacks were fighting for the Union, for the United States Army, and were armed and allowed to be armed. And that site, I imagine, was one of the scariest sites that a sort of Southern slave owner would, would, would encounter, right, as a Black person with a gun. I find that history both fascinating and infuriating. The notion that the colonists said they needed guns to protect from these external threats posed by indigenous nations and from Blacks who were in the colonies at the time, and that there gradually becomes greater acceptance once those soldiers are taking up arms in order to preserve the Confederacy and to protect that interest. But that difference between who poses a threat versus who deserves to be protected, as you said, persist. And one of the things that also appears in your work is this notion of how people respond to movements and respond to demands for freedom. How then have has the Second Amendment been used to stop movements or to deter people? You mentioned some of the, the slave rebellions. How has the Second Amendment been used in that context? So at that point, um, during, the, the, during the, the time of slavery, there wasn't really a case made that Blacks had a right to own guns or that, they, or that the Second Amendment applied to them. So this was not necessarily a shift between the law on the books and the law in practice. What we saw was that shift started to occur 
when in fact it became clear that Blacks would be recognized as full Americans with all the rights, there was a, a, a strong disconnect between that historical experience of not seeing Black people own guns lawfully to seeing Black people own guns lawfully. And yet, um, that this, this almost uh, uh, national memory of the fact that if a black person is owning a gun, there's something, there's something gone amiss, there's something wrong with that. And that that was a violent act in and of itself, right? The possession of a firearm um, is, is viewed in black hands as in and of itself a threat. Whereas we don't necessarily see that being the case um, when a white American, for example, is owning a gun. Now, I'll say that the idea of gun ownership and the restrictions that ought to be placed or not is a controversial subject. So of course, there are many people who see anyone with a gun as a threat, but among those who petition for and champion the rights of gun ownership, oftentimes black folks are left outside of those appeals and those petitions. When we think about the NRA and the their very strong advocacy for gun rights across, a, a, you know, historically, and the sense that oftentimes African Americans have felt very excluded. Though those who want to own guns lawfully have felt very excluded from that movement, um, and have started gun ownership associations of their own. In fact, in the last year or two. Um, what we're seeing is a massive increase in membership in the National, so the National African American um, Gun Association. And what we're seeing is increases 30, 50, 70% increased membership in those organizations. And in part because though many of these people don't feel welcome, haven't felt welcome in the NRA and that movement. The beauty of the Constitution is that it is a living document, that there's always this debate over interpretation. But there's also, as you say, this difference between rights on the books and rights in person. And often the person who gets to decide those rights on the ground has a sense of power that others may not. And we add the layer of race that really makes a difference. Professor, a lot of people talked about the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol and how differently that may have looked if the people engaging in those treasonous acts had been African-Americans and would the response be different? So I'll ask that question to you. Do you think that the response would have been different or do you think that the question that we should be asking is more about why certain people are allowed to present in that way and others are not? Obviously, we're, we're engaging in a bit of speculation, but if asked to go down that route, I have no doubt that the response would have been quite different had the group of insurrectionists been largely people of color, Black or otherwise. Um, I think the response would have been different. I think it never would have gotten as far as it did. Um, and I think the response, the reaction post January 6th would have been quite different as well in terms of the uh, not only the, the prosecution, the arrests, but the public response and outcry would have been far 
far greater. And we would have seen the, the impact of that for many, many years to come. Um, and, and we can see that playing out. So even in some of the examples that, that you mentioned, you know, we have examples of African-American, mostly men in these cases, owning firearms, licensed, licensed gun owners, who, when seen in public, for example, in a mall or in a nightclub, as soon as they are viewed with a firearm, the assumption is that they are the villains, they're the bad guys, they're up to no good, and that they must be stopped. And not necessarily stopped and questioned, but stopped and, 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 and killed, assassinated in a sense. So I think that we have some evidence that folks are being treated very differently. And you're absolutely right to point out that in that moment, right, when we're not in a court of law, but on the streets and the law is being, is being applied, that there is a, a big differential of power. And those with the power are not viewing the Second Amendment right in a non-racialized manner. There's a lot of public frustration about that disconnect to think about the fact that we've been grappling with these dual pandemics, one of COVID-19, but also the racial tensions that have often resulted in deaths and violence toward African-Americans. And one of the examples that you mention in your work is the response to Kyle Rittenhouse, this you know young white man who shot and killed people. And the response has been very different as opposed to, as you talk about, Amantic Bradford, who was really a hero trying to protect other people, but was shot and killed because the reaction to his presence was very different. How do we grapple with that tension, not just in, in public conversation, but in working to ensure that the law protects everyone equally and doesn't prioritize people based on their perceived racial identity or worth? There is a lot of work to be done in this area, and it needs to happen on many different fronts. So, of course, law enforcement is, is, is often the first respondents in, in something like this, and they need to be trained. It's not clear that training alone will do it. In fact, many think about training as a panacea that, that doesn't really solve any problems, but that would be one step. But the visibility of licensed legal black gun ownership has to be part of the solution. So we need to democratize our view of who the gun owner is. Um, so that would be one step. How we do that, again, that's a multi-prong, you know, we need to have a multi-prong approach to that. You know, but the problem that we're talking about has been a problem for a very long time. And I always often think about a quote, you know, by James Baldwin, who says, when a white person picks up a gun and says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, he is judged a criminal and treated like one. And that quote was true then and it's true now. And it's hard to imagine a world sometime soon where that's going to be different. When we think about the role of the courts, in not just protecting the Second Amendment or interpreting the Second Amendment, but really affirming the meaning of citizenship in the United States. 
Is there a particular issue or set of issues related to the Second Amendment that you think we should expect the court to take up or that you would want the court to address? You know, I would say that the concept of the Second Amendment and and thinking about really gun control laws, right, because that's where much of the debate is, is what is an appropriate level of gun control that violates or doesn't violate the, the, the Second Amendment. And I would think that the courts can think about whether or not gun control, the history itself of gun control laws is is part should be part of the way that we view the amendment and what those gun control laws should contain. Um, as I mentioned, gun control laws preceded the framing. You know, we had gun control laws before we had a constitution. And so to think about this this notion that somehow the Second Amendment should be uh, protected even from you know any regulation is something that I think courts can look at. And to add to that, the equalization of the application of the amendment is really, you know, thinking about how equal protection might apply, for example, to the Second Amendment in terms of how states and how law enforcement agencies conceive of the Second Amendment and go beyond the text to see how they actually enforce it and how it's applied, how they enforce the gun control laws and how those are applied would be things that that can be done. Professor Margaret Etienne is professor at the University of Illinois College of Law. She's also associate dean and the Nancy Snowden Research Scholar. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been my pleasure. Thank you very much. This episode was originally produced by Daniela Luna and Anna Elizabeth. The rest of our team includes Jane Scoble-Wolf, Shekana Collier, and Katie Tolarski. Our interns are Abi Levine and Dylan Reyes. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.